بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن اهتدى بهدى أما بعد We welcome our brothers back to the second day of the marriage course and we hope by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we complete uh, what remains from the booklet. And today, my dear brothers, after we discussed yesterday the beginning stages of marriage and everything that happens before marriage, we now uh, speak about the pillars of the marriage contract. We spoke about the engagement period and choosing the correct uh, husband and choosing the correct wife and whatever else and the encouragement of getting married. And now we begin with the pillars of the contract. Because in order for a marriage to be correct, there must be a contract. And that contract has pillars and conditions in order for the marriage contract to be valid. In order for the marriage contract to be valid. The Sheikh says on page 12, a marriage contract has two, has two pillars. A marriage contract has two pillars only. And that is the proposal, which is the offer from the groom and the acceptance, which is from the bride and her wali. The bride and her wali, her guardian. These are the two pillars of a marriage contract. An offer and an acceptance. Then we have conditions of the marriage contract. And what these mean, what this means is that you must have these things in the marriage contract in order for the contract to be correct. In order for the contract to be correct. The first of those conditions, my dear brothers, is the approval of the wali. The approval of the female's wali. And we get that from the hadith here, the hadith of Aisha, that the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, any woman whose marriage is not approved by her wali, her marriage is invalid, her marriage is invalid, her marriage is invalid. He said it three times, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So this is a clear hadith that a lady must have a wali to approve of her marriage, to give her away in marriage. Now, there is an opinion in the Hanafi Madhab. There is an opinion in the Hanafi Madhab where they allow a lady to get married without a wali, a lady that's been divorced, to get married without a wali. They say she can marry herself off uh, in the contract. And this is an incorrect opinion because the hadith here is clear. Any lady, says any lady who gets married without her wali, her marriage is invalid, invalid, invalid. So the lady must have a wali to give her away in marriage. And the awliya of the lady, the lady's wali, work in levels. Her first and foremost wali is her father, if he is a Muslim. Her father, if he is a Muslim. So the first wali of a lady is her father. If her father is not around or unavailable, it then moves on to who's above her father, which is her grandfather. Okay? So the father first, then the grandfather. If we assume she has no father and she has no grandfather, it then moves on to her son. If she has a son and he's of mature age. So it goes from father, grandfather, son. If she doesn't have a son, grandson. It works that way. Son, grandson, if she has. 
if she doesn't have a son, it then moves on to her brother. So the son before the brother. Okay? It goes to her brothers. If she does not have brothers, then it goes to her uncles. And with the uncles, it starts with the uncles from the father's side before the mother's side. Yeah? The uncle's side, the, the father's side before the mother's side. So that's the stages of the wali. We look for the father, no father, grandfather, no grandfather, son, no son, grandson, no grandson, brother, no brother, uncles. Uncle from father's side, then uncle from mother's side. Um, the brothers ask for the elders? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Any brother is okay. But generally, they go for the oldest brother. But it, that's not a condition. Does it then go to nephews? If there's none of them, it can go to nephews. And so forth. If she has no one, then she can allocate She can allocate a wali. She can allocate a wali. Like the sheikh uh, or a person of deen and so forth. This is allowed. As long as the wali is Muslim. And that's why... Uh, that's in the uh, uh, witnesses. The wali must be a Muslim because a non-Muslim cannot be a wali over a Muslim. A non-Muslim cannot be a wali over a Muslim. So we get like revert sisters and their parents are non-Muslim. Her father cannot be her wali. So she will assign another wali like her, the, her sheikh or whatever else and so forth. Is this understood? Tayyip. The second condition of a marriage contract is two trustworthy witnesses minimum. Two trustworthy witnesses. Aisha radiallahu anha narrated, the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, there is no marriage except with a wali and two trustworthy witnesses. So if a marriage is performed without witnesses, it's invalid. It is invalid. And Imam Al-Tirmidhi rahimahullah said, this is acted upon by the people of knowledge from the companions of the Prophet and those after them from the Tabi'een and others who said, there is no marriage valid except with witnesses. So this was the practice of all the Sahaba and the Tabi'een. They would always have witnesses at the marriage. Okay, these witnesses, my dear brothers, we always hear two witnesses, two witnesses. These witnesses have conditions. These witnesses have conditions. And they are, number one, must be Muslim. If you have a hundred non-Muslims witnessing the marriage, it's invalid if there's no Muslim. Okay, so the two witnesses, minimum, must be Muslim. Also must be trustworthy. People of deen, people of morals, people of good character. We don't get evil people to witness marriages. Okay? So they have to be Muslim. They should be trustworthy. Sound mind. You can't get two witnesses and one of them is insane. His witness is not considered. Okay? So they have to be of sound mind and reached puberty. The witness of a child is not considered. Okay? The witness of a child is not considered. The scholars differed. The scholars have differed. If two women, two Muslim women, can be a witness on behalf of one man. Yeah? Because in Islam, in Islam, two women can be a witness in a court 
on behalf of one man. Two women equal one man. So the question is, can two women act as one in a marriage contract? So if I'm doing a marriage contract and I have one male witness and I have two women, is the contract valid or not? I have one man and two women as witnesses. Sheikh Al-Albani said yes. Sheikh Al-Albani said yes. Two women can act on behalf of one man. Two women can act on behalf of one man. And then we have the offer and the acceptance. This is also a must in the marriage contract that the groom makes an offer, I want to marry, or the bride side, sorry, makes an offer. I marry my daughter to you and then the groom accepts, I accept. That's the offer and the acceptance. And the contract is valid with any type of words used which are clear in meaning. The offer and acceptance doesn't have a set word. As long as it's an offer and an acceptance and it's clear in meaning, that's all that's needed. Like I can say, I marry my daughter to you and you say, I accept. That's it. It's valid. Doesn't matter what language it's in either. Doesn't matter what language it is in either. So these are the pillars and the conditions of a marriage contract. If you notice my dear brothers here, we didn't mention something. What? Huh? Huh? Dowry. Excellent. The dowry shabab, the mahar, believe it or not, it's not a condition of the contract. It's not a condition of the contract. But, pay attention, but once the contract is done, a mahar becomes obligatory. The mahar is not a condition of the marriage contract. But once a contract is done, a mahar becomes obligatory. So what does that mean? It means in Islam, we are allowed to do contracts without mentioning a mahar. In Islam, you are allowed to do a marriage contract without mentioning the mahar, even though that's very rare today. In this day and age, they always mention the mahar. But let's say someone done a marriage contract and they didn't mention a mahar. It's okay. But then what happens, once the contract is done, there has to be an agreed mahar upon it between the husband and the wife and huwali. Let's say no mahar has been mentioned. Muslims done a marriage contract and then they got married. They got married and they consummated the marriage and no mahar was mentioned. Then there's a divorce or the husband dies and no mahar was mentioned in the marriage contract. What does the lady get? She gets the same mahar as the average of the women in her time. Yes, she gets the average. So what we're trying to show you here, Shabab, it's not a condition that you put a mahar in the contract. But once a contract is done with those conditions, the witness, the offer, the acceptance, after the contract is done, there must be a mahar. If there's no mahar mentioned, the lady gets what the average gets.
Okay? And you're going to see that later on. There's, there's verses in Ahadith that prove this. Fine. We now move on to the forbidden marriages. The marriages that are haram in Islam. The first, yes. Good question. The sisters asked the sisters asked that question today. What is the average mahar today? The average mahar differs in times and places. What average in a country might not be the average here. It differs. Here in Sydney, I told the sisters, I am probably not the best person to ask. The reason for that is because I very rarely do katbiktab. What I usually do is I offload them to other mashayikh. Okay? But the ones that I do and the ones that I do hear of, I would say that the average of the mahar today in Sydney could be anywhere between the ten and $20,000 mark. That's the average. Between the ten and the $20,000 mark. That's the average. Wallahu alam. But another sheikh might tell you different. I don't do much katabik tabs, but that's from what I see. To be honest, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> if a lady <laughs> money making <laughs> comes back to the fear of Allah Azza wa Jal. When people fear Allah, and Nabi Sallallahu said the best mahar is the simple. That's the honest truth. Even giving education, no, the most simple. Yeah, the most simple. Yes, the time of Nabi Sallallahu is different to our day and age today, unfortunately. Alhamdulillah. Okay, Shabab. The forbidden marriages, the marriages that are haram in Islam. Number one, mut'ah. The mut'ah marriage is haram. What is the mut'ah marriage? It is doing a contract to marry a lady for a set period of time. This is not allowed. Like doing a contract that I will marry you for one month, one week, one day, one hour, one year, ten years, five years. Setting a time in a marriage contract is not allowed. This is mut'ah. And mut'ah was halal for a period of time, a few days only, then Allah made it haram. As we have the hadith here of Ali ibn Abi Talib, on the day of Khaybar, Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam forbade the mut'ah. He forbade mut'ah and the eating of donkey meat. So on the day of Khaybar, which is when the Prophet went to battle against the Jews, two things became haram, mut'ah and the eating of Donkey meat, the eating of donkey meat. The second marriage that is haram is the tahlil marriage. And basically the tahlil marriage shabab is where a person marries a lady for no other reason so that he can divorce her, so she can go back to her ex-husband who divorced her three times. Yeah? So when a lady gets divorced three times, we know that she cannot go back to her husband unless she remarries someone else and gets divorced. There are people who used to do this. So a lady would have gotten divorced three times, 
but her or her husband want to get back together. So then a third man will come, marry her, divorce her so that she can go back to her first husband. This marriage is haram. And the Prophet said, the man who does that and the man that gets it done, meaning the first husband, they're both cursed by Allah Azza wa Jal. We are not allowed to marry just for the intention of having a lady go back to her first husband. But if a lady that's divorced three times marries another man genuinely and then genuinely gets divorced from that man or her husband dies, then yes, she can go back to her first husband. But we're not allowed to do it for that intention. Understood? That's called the tahleel marriage. Did you have something, Jamal? We have the hadith here. Ibn Abbas عنه, narrated, the Messenger وسلم, said, Allah has cursed the muhallil and the muhallil lahu. That's them two men. Meaning, the man that marries the lady for that reason and the ex-husband that wants it done. They're both cursed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says, if a man genuinely married a divorced lady and had sexual intercourse with her, that's the condition. So if a divorced lady three times marries the second man and then the second man has sexual intercourse with her and then they get divorced genuinely, then she can return to her first husband. But if the second man did not consummate the marriage with her, he didn't have sexual intercourse with her, she still cannot go back to the first husband. It has to be a genuine marriage, yes. It must be a genuine marriage to the second man. And he has to have consummated the marriage. Understood? Tayyip. And that's taken from the ayah here on page 14. Allah Azza wa says in the translation, and if he has divorced her for the third time, then she is not lawful to him afterward until after she marries a husband other than him. She's not halal to the first until she marries another husband. And if the latter husband divorces her or dies, there is no blame upon the woman and her former husband for returning to each other if they think they can keep within the limit of Allah. So it's the ayah. It allows them to get back together if she divorced or her second husband died. The third marriage that's haram is the shigar marriage. And the shigar marriage, my, uh, my brothers, is a marriage that they used to do in the time of the Arabs in Jahiliyyah. And basically the shigar marriage is one for one. What they used to do is they used to say to each other, I'll give you my sister, you give me, my, you give me your sister. Okay? So there's no mahar, nothing. I'll give you my sister, you give me your sister. That's a shigar marriage and it's muharram. It's not allowed. Or I'll give you my daughter, you give me your daughter. It's haram. The Prophet said, there is no shigar in Islam. There is no shigar in Islam. With mahar, it's just then becomes a matter of nasib. It's not a condition in a contract. For example, if you married my sister in a normal marriage, and we did not stipulate in the contract that, okay, you marry mine and I'll marry yours, then a period of time later on, I married your sister with mahar, it's okay. 
So people can marry each other's sisters, that's permissible. But you're not allowed to have it in a one-seating contract like that. One for one. One for one. So it's basically only haram because there's a, there's, a, there's a contract there, like only for the one for one. That's why it's haram. Correct. Other Correct. than that, you can. You can. Other than that, you can, that's of course. Business trade deal. Yes. Exactly. That's, what, that's why it's haram. Exactly, without a doubt. Number four. The haram marriage is the hidden marriage. And a hidden marriage, my dear brothers, means a marriage where the lady has no wali, and there are no witnesses to the marriage. No witnesses. If you have two witnesses, it's not a hidden marriage. Keep that in mind. A hidden marriage is when there's no witnesses and no wali. Like a man and a lady that agreed to get married. That's it. Let's get married. And there's no Muslim witnesses and there's no wali. This is haram in Islam. So it should be and not all, right? It should be without a wali and... Neither or witnesses. Without a wali, yes, and all witnesses. Correct. You need both. Yes. Correct. Correct. Okay, Shabab, we now move on to point number 19, and that is marrying an adulterer or adulteress. The ruling on a Muslim man marrying a Zaniya or a Muslim lady marrying a Zani. Marrying the adulterer and the adulteress. He says, It is not permissible for a man to marry an adulteress, nor a female to marry an adulterer, unless they make a sincere repentance beforehand. Unless they make a sincere repentance beforehand. Allah Azza wa Jal has made chastity, yani iffa, a condition that must be in both the husband and the wife before marriage. Chastity is a condition before marriage. Allah Azza wa Jal says, This day all good foods have been made halal. And the food of those who were given the scripture is halal for you. And your food is halal for them. And lawful in marriage are chaste women from among the believers and chaste women from among those who were given the scripture before you. See that? The women of Ahlul Kitab, the Jews and the Christians, they must be chaste also if a Muslim man was to marry them. It's the verse. So the Muslim lady and the Jewish lady and the Christian lady, if a man was to marry either of them, it's a condition in all of them, they must be chaste. And chaste means they do not commit zina. And what does this tell us, my dear brothers? Huge mistake that some of our brothers fall into in this day and age, where they think that they can live in haram with a girlfriend, and then it's a simple as going and making it halal, just by doing a Muslim contract. That's incorrect. And if a sheikh does the contract on that basis, that's a lack of understanding from the sheikh. Because a sheikh cannot, and he should not do a marriage contract for two people who are living in zina. 
They must both repent sincerely from zina. And the scholar said, even the lady in zina must do a idda. She must sit three months. Then, if they have proven themselves to have repented sincerely, then they can get married. Don't you hear sometimes they're living in haram, just go do your katabiktab to make it halal. Do we hear that? Does not work like that. A condition of marriage is iffa, chaste. They must be chaste, meaning free from zina. Look at Sheikh al-Albani. Look further down the page what Sheikh al-Albani said. Sheikh al-Albani was asked about two people who committed zina if they can get married. He said no. Sheikh al-Albani, he said no. He was then asked, what if they repented? He still said no. Why did he say no when they told him, what if they repented? Because Sheikh al-Albani is very wise. You know, there's a lot of people play games in this topic. Yeah? He still said no. Then they asked him, what if it is proven by third parties that those two sincerely repented for Allah? Then he said yes. In other words, he's not even going to take the word of the two. If they come and say, oh, we've repented. No. According to Shaykh al-Albani, only if others can prove that they're genuine in their tawbah, then you can do their marriage contract. That's to the extent, my dear brothers. So we don't have this, wallah, we're living in haram, he's fornicating with the lady, and then he wants to go and do his contract right away. Well, you say you said that has to be proven by third party. Does that mean, like, they had to like, fully change their lifestyle? Of course. So, like, praying. Not, like, repent. They're at least not committing zina anymore. They're not doing the haram anymore in any way. No, nothing, yeah. nothing. And then if she's done tawbah, he's done tawbah, and people can prove it, Sheikh al-Albani said, yeah. Then if they want to get married, marry them. But anything less than that, no. Basically, Allahu Allah. Allah. They're saying it's not allowed. Look, it could be correct, but with a sin. Could be correct, but with a sin. But some ulama might say Allah has put it as a condition, so the contract will be invalid. It's like our brothers that want to marry a Jewish lady or a Christian lady, and you look at, and the lady is a zania. Habibi, you can't just go and marry a Jew or a Christian that's committing zina. You've been committing zina for years on end and now you want to come and do your katabik. No, no. You have to go your way. She goes, oh, you have to repent to Allah Azza wa Jal. And then genuinely later on, if you want to do the contract, then it becomes permissible. Not necessarily. The had only applies under a Sharia law if they are caught or if they confess. If they confess, that's all. But if they're living in zina themselves, they can do tawbah themselves. But if they confess and the had implemented on them, that would be considered a sincere repentance. Yes, yes, correct. Five. So that's regarding marrying the zani and the zaniya. Now, my dear brothers, we move on to the hukuk. 
the rights between a husband and wife, and we're going to briefly go through them. Okay, the rights between a husband and the rights between a wife in Islam. The Sheikh says, Islam has enjoined upon the husband duties towards his wife, and vice versa, the wife has right over her husband. And among these duties are some which are shared by both husband and wife. So in Islam, in marriage, there's rights that are specific to the wife, and there's rights that are specific to the husband, and then there's rights that are shared between both of them. There's rights that are shared between both of them. He says, we will mention by the help of Allah Azza wa Jal, some of the texts of the Quran and the Sunnah, which have to do with the duties of the spouses towards one another. Quoting also from the commentaries and views of the scholars. And we begin with the right of the wife. We begin with the right of the wife. So the wife has financial rights over her husband, which is the mahar, spending and accommodation. These are the rights of the wife, the financial rights of the wife over her husband. The mahar, spending and accommodation. And she also has non-financial rights, such as fair division between co-wives. If the husband has two or three or four wives, it's her haq of fair division. And being treated in a decent and reasonable manner, and not being treated in a harmful way by her husband. These are generally the huquq of the wife, and now the sheikh goes through each one, one by one. First and foremost, Shabab, the financial right of the wife. Number one, the mahar. That's her financial right. We said it's not a condition of the contract, but once you are married, a mahar is obligatory on you upon the wife. You have to give her a mahar. And the mahar is the money to which the wife is entitled from her husband when the marriage contract is completed or when the marriage is consummated. It is a right which the man is obliged to pay to the woman. Allah Azza wa Jal says, and give to the woman whom you marry their mahar with a good heart. See, Allah says, give the women you marry their mahar and not only give it to them, give it to them with a good heart. Be satisfied and happy that this is her right Allah has given her. Yeah? He says, the prescription of the mahar demonstrates the seriousness and importance of the marriage contract. The mahar shows that the marriage contract is something very important and is a token of respect and honor to the woman. The mahar is not a condition or essential part of the marriage contract, as we mentioned, according to the majority of fuqaha. Rather, it is one of the consequences of the contract. So it's a consequence of the contract, comes after. If the marriage contract is done without the mentioning of a mahar, it is still valid. The contract is still valid according to the consensus of the majority of scholars, because Allah in the Quran says, there is no sin on you if you divorce women while you have not touched them or appointed to them a mahar. See that? Allah says, there's no sin on you, the man, if you divorce the lady before touching her or before mentioning a mahar. So that shows divorce can take place before a mahar has been mentioned. That shows that the mahar is not a condition of the contract. 
Understood? He says the fact that divorce is permitted before consummation of the marriage or before stipulating the mahar indicates that it is permissible not to stipulate the mahar in the marriage contract. If the mahar is stipulated, yani mentioned, it becomes obligatory upon the husband. If it is not mentioned, he must give the mahar that is given to women of similar status to his wife. So you can either mention the mahar in the contract, or if you don't mention it and then the wife asks for it, she's entitled to get what the average women of her time get. She asked for the mother, or when you finish the paper, the marriage. Uh, is it a cultural thing that they're doing in Adam and Yeah, so the the which is the upfront and the delayed dowry. So sometimes people put in the contract, the mahar is twenty thousand dollars, ten thousand upfront and ten thousand delayed. That delayed is usually if there's a divorce, I'll give you the other ten. This is a cultural thing, meaning it's not something that happened in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. But it doesn't mean it's an innovation. Because it's an agreement in a contract. You are allowed to put any agreement in any contract as long as it's not an agreement or a condition that opposes the Qur'an or the Sunnah. The only agreements we cannot agree to are the ones that oppose the Kitab and the Sunnah. This agreement does not. It's just saying, I'm going to give you some of your mahar now and then some of your mahar if there's a divorce. But even though that is in the contract, we have to understand the whole mahar is still obligatory on us. So if the man can still give the whole mahar even before a divorce, that's still good and better. That's still good and better. But he's just safe that he doesn't have to give the delayed dowry unless he dies or unless... There's a divorce. Without a doubt. It's either going to be in his life, or if he's, it's either he gives it to her, or if he divorces her, she gets it, or if he dies, she gets it. Even. 100%. Has nothing to do with the spending. Even if he bought her millions of dollars worth of gifts, if he does not tell her this is part of your mahar, it's not part of the mahar. Yes, or even when they're alive in the marriage, if she forgives him. So let's say there's a mahar, and then the wife forgives the husband for it, it's forgiven. Who will be covering the discrepancy between like, a Muslim marriage in contract with civil law, Western society contract? Because in Western society, of course, the dowry here, I feel like it protects both parties, but with civil law, I think. Uh, yeah, so, we're not covering that in this course because it's only a two-day short yeah, course. But, but yeah, yeah. A, a contract in Muslim marriage can we apply that to court in civil? You mean take the Sharia law to the civil court? Yeah. Yes, of course, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah. So let's say, for example, a lady, her husband divorced her, and she's entitled to a mahar. And her husband is not giving it to her when he can. She can do what means is necessary to get her haq only. Her Islamic right. Her Islamic right. Not Allah go and slug him half of his assets. Yeah? 
No, that's not allowed. But a person can do what's in their means to get their Islamic rights. And if they, uh, the wife initiates a divorce, like we need to know, she says she's not in love with the husband or whatever reason, does she get like half or part of the divorce? She just forfeits half or part of all of the mahar. The mahar works two ways. If the divorce comes from the husband, even if the lady is asking for it, if the divorce comes from the husband, he gives her all the mahar, even if she asks for the divorce. But if she gets a khulua, where she goes and nullifies the contract between her and her husband, she has to give her husband any mahar that he gave her. If he gave it to her. If he hasn't given it to her, he hasn't given it to her. But if he gave her a mahar, yes. If he wants it back, it's his right to take it back. Is there limited conditions to a khulu? Like, under, like, say, you know, I've heard before, you know, we know if there's a husband who's really not Islamic or, like, you know, oppression. A lady can get an Islamic khulu if she has valid Islamic reasons. That's when she can seek a khulu. Things like he oppresses her, he doesn't give her from her rights, he doesn't spend on her, he's not intimate with her. These are valid reasons. A lady cannot seek a khulu for a non Islamic reason it's haram okay but if she does have an islamic reason she can seek a khula and that's her freeing herself from her husband and by freeing herself from her husband she gives him back what he gave her from the mahar or if the wife was to just simply say oh, I, I don't love him anymore i'm not attracted to him or that is that a valid yani to show? it can be it can be because the hadith of thabit ibn qais when his wife got the khula from him she said to the Prophet ﷺ, Thabit, I don't complain about his religion. I'm just afraid I cannot give him his rights. Meaning she stopped loving him. So the Prophet told her, would you give him back his farm? Because that was the dowry. She said, yeah, I'll give it back. Then he told Thabit, give her the khula. So it can be. But we usually try not to make it that easy. Like, love, oh, I don't love him. What do you mean you don't love him? The Sheikh should get involved to try to resolve an issue and leave that as a last Resort, yani. Okay. B. From the financial rights of the wife, Shabab, is spending. Your wife, it's her right that you spend on her. The scholars of Islam are agreed that it is obligatory for husband to spend on their wives, on the condition that the wife makes herself available to her husband. If she refuses him or rebels, she is not entitled to that spending. Yes, this is the shara. A lady cannot expect her husband to provide for her if she has rebelled or is rebelling against her husband. If she is refusing to be intimate with her husband, because that's his haq. Yeah, Islam is very realistic. It's about everyone giving each other their rights. It's about everyone giving each other their rights. The reason why it is obligatory to spend on her is that the woman is available only to her husband because of the marriage contract. And she is not allowed to leave the marital home except with his permission. So he has to spend on her and provide for her. And this is in return for her making herself available to him for his pleasure. Islam is beautiful. It's very pure and simple. These are things that people have distorted their understanding due to Western mentality and society and whatever else. No. Our deen is very clear. The husband has rights, the wife has rights. If we live by them, we live happy. That's the honest truth. We live according to the hukuk, we live happy in our lives.
He says what is meant by spending is providing what the wife needs. Her necessities, such as food and accommodation. She has the right to these things even if she is rich. That's her haqq. Allah has given it to her. Even if she's rich. So if your wife is rich and she wants you to pay the rent, that's her right. You can't say, you've got more money than me, you go pay the rent. No, that's your wife's right over you. Okay? Allah Azza says, But the father of the child shall bear the cost of the mother's food and clothing on a reasonable basis. On a reasonable basis. And Allah says, Let the rich man spend according to his means, and the man whose resources are restricted, let him spend according to what Allah has given him. So Allah tells the man to spend. So it's the wife's right that her husband spends on her and the family. The Prophet ﷺ also, he said to Hind bint Utbah, who was the wife of Abu Sufyan, he said to her, take what is sufficient for you and your children on a reasonable basis. And that's when Hind, as it shows in the next hadith, the wife of Abu Sufyan, she came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, O Messenger of Allah, Abu Sufyan is a stingy man. She's complaining about her husband that he's stingy, he doesn't spend. Who does not spend enough on me and my children except for what I take from his wealth without his knowledge. So what's she doing? She's taking from his wealth without him knowing because he's stingy. So then she asked the Prophet ﷺ, is there any sin on me for doing that? So the Prophet ﷺ said, take from his wealth on a reasonable basis. What is sufficient for you and your children? So that shows it's permissible for the wife to even take from her husband's wealth without his knowledge if he is oppressing. If he is not fulfilling their rights. And the Prophet ﷺ gave her the green light to do so. Food, accommodation, or what we might consider in our day and age necessity. Absolutely not. Necessity. She said he's not providing us except with what I'm able to take from him, meaning enough for me and the children. And the Prophet told her, take what is enough, reasonable. Not wallah, my husband's not buying me a Gucci bag, so I'm going to go take five grand out of his account because the hen took from Abu Sufyan. No. It's necessities. The necessities. Also, the Prophet ﷺ said in the farewell hajj, Fear Allah concerning women. Verily, you have taken them on the security of Allah and intercourse with them has been made lawful to you by words of Allah. You too have rights over them and that they should not allow anyone to sit on your bed or not let them into your house who you do not like. But if they do that, you can chastise them but not severely. Their rights upon you are that you should provide them with food and clothing in a fitting manner. See, you provide them with food and clothing in a manner that is befitting the next financial right of the wife is accommodation. So we said food, we said clothing, and also accommodation. This is also one of the, right, the wife's rights. 
which means that her husband should prepare for her accommodation according to his means and ability. And remember, Shabab, accommodation and clothing, the scholars have even set a minimum. Meaning, if the husband does it, he's being just. And anything above that is from his good heart. What is the minimum? Believe it or not, look how simple and beautiful Islam is. The clothing of the woman, the bare minimum of her right is two garments. One in winter, one in summer. So if a man, even though he should not in this day and age, but if a man chose to give his wife one garment every winter and one garment in summer, he is fulfilling her rights in terms of clothing. And with accommodation, the scholars say, her room with the necessities. She has her room with like a kitchen and a bathroom. That's her accommodation. Anything above that is from the husband's good heart. Yes. Because the shara has to have a minimum to know is the husband doing what's in his right or not. Okay? Now, how do we know it's the wife's right accommodation? Allah says, lodge them, meaning the divorced women, where you dwell according to your means. Because the divorced lady who's divorced from a first or second divorce, she's still your wife. And Allah says, put her where you live. So that shows that it is the lady's right of accommodation. It is the lady's right to have accommodation from her husband. Then now we have the non-financial rights. These are the financial rights. Then we have the non-financial rights. The first one is fair treatment before the co-wives, between the co-wives. So if a man has two wives, three wives, four wives, it's their right of fair treatment. It's their right to have fair treatment. One of the rights that a wife has over her husband is that she and her co-wives should be treated equally. Her and her co-wives are treated equally. If the husband has other wives with regards to nights spent with them and with regards to spending and clothing, he has to be equal between his wives regarding these things. Nights that are spent with them. That's if they all choose that. Okay? That if they all choose that, meaning if one of the wife agrees to give up her night or a day of hers, she has the choice to do that. Because Nabi Sallallahu one of his wives gave her day to Aisha. So this is allowed. But let's say for argument's sake, they want their rights. If they want their rights, the husband must be just in time, in spending his nights. Also, he must be just in spending and clothing. What that means, Shabab, is that he must give their rights equally. It does not mean if he gives this one this, he has to give that one the same thing. No. What it means is, if he provides one with clothes, food, shelter, he has to provide the other one with clothes, food, shelter, if that's what they want. Do you understand? So it has to be just in that way. He has to be just in that way. Also, 
From the non-financial rights is kind treatment. It's the wife's right that her husband treats her kindly. The husband must have a good attitude toward his wife and be kind to her and offer her everything that may soften her heart. Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَعَاشِرُوهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ Live with your wives in goodness, honorable. So that shows that the husband should not treat his wife in an evil way. He should not treat his wife like an animal. No, your wife is your partner in life. So Islam prevents the man from treating his wife in an evil manner. Because Allah says, live with them honorably. Also Allah Azza wa Jal says, and they, the women, have rights over their husbands as regards to living expenses, similar to those of their husbands over them as regards to obedience and respect to what is reasonable. So Allah says both have rights. And that's one of the shared rights that we live in goodness. The husband lives with the wife in goodness and the wife lives with the husband in goodness. And Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu narrated that the Prophet sallallahu said, be kind to women. That was one of his wasiyah, his advice. Be kind to women. So that's part of our deen, my dear brothers, that we treat our wives well. This is part of the deen and Natya and Nabi sallallahu taught us to be. See, it's also from the wife's right that we do not harm them. We're not allowed to harm in Islam. He says this is one of the basic principles of Islam because harming others is haram in the case of strangers. If it's haram to harm a stranger, then your wife is more worthy that you don't harm her. Yes? Um, so, a woman cannot divorce her husband without her husband's permission? No, she cannot divorce her husband without a valid reason. Yeah, not necessarily, because some husbands refuse, but if the wife has a valid reason, the sheikh can give her the divorce. Okay, what if the husband gets a secondary wife and then the first wife? It's not a valid reason. It's not a valid reason. Not a valid reason. Not a valid reason. Correct. Okay. She cannot get divorced for that reason. Yeah, okay. Um, and if she, she's not happy, she, she needs a husband to divorce the marriage. If he got another wife, you mean? Yes. She can ask him for a divorce, but she's committing a sin. That's a sin in self-in-asking. Without a doubt. The Prophet ﷺ said, any lady that asks for a divorce with no valid reason does not smell the fragrance of paradise. The man having a second, third wife, She has to be patient. But if he's not giving her her rights, she can ask for a divorce. But a man doesn't need to the first wife permission to get another wife. Of course not. Just like he doesn't need permission to marry the first, he doesn't need permission to marry a second. Yes. Um, and also, I'm not sure if you're going to cover it, but when you say you've got one one's wife, is that in the Quran it says, uh, it says uh, number one, if your wife is not obedient, then the first step is don't talk to her. It's coming up. It's coming. Hit them. Yes, it's coming up. Okay. So we're not allowed to harm. Harm means darar shabab. You know, causing harm, this is not allowed in Islam. Ubad ibn Samit narrated that the Prophet ﷺ he ruled there should be no harming nor reciprocating harm. So, darar in all its forms, it's haram. Whether it's towards a wife, whether it's towards a friend, whether it's towards a business partner, whether it's anything, you as a Muslim do not harm people. That's not the quality of a Muslim. So, harming is not allowed. 
And among the things to which the lawgiver drew attention in this matter is the prohibition of hitting or beating in a severe manner. Yes, this is not allowed because that's harming. Hitting or beating in a severe manner is haram for the husband upon his wife. The Prophet ﷺ said in the farewell sermon, Fear Allah concerning women, verily you have taken them on the security of Allah, and intercourse with them has been made lawful to you by words of Allah. You too have right over them, and that they should not allow anyone to sit on your bed, or let them into the house who you do not like. But if they do that, you can chastise them, but not severely. The Prophet ﷺ said, Their right upon you are that you should provide them with food and clothing in a fitting manner. And that's going to be explained even more with the right of the husband, inshaAllah. So these are in general, my brothers, the right of the wife. You give your wife these things, you're giving her her hukuk. She has no reason not to be happy because they're the right Allah has given to her. These are the right Allah Azza wa Jal has given to her. We now move on to the right of the husband in Islam. You, the man. What are your rights in Islam? He says the right of the husband over his wife are among the greatest rights. Indeed, his rights over her are greater than her right over him. Even though all the rights have to be given. But your rights over your wife are greater than her rights over you. Because Allah has made the man someone who the wife obeys. The wife obeys her husband. So his rights are much greater. And Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran, and they have right over their husband similar to those of their husbands over them as regards obedience and respect to what is reasonable. But men have a degree of responsibility over them. Men have a higher degree or a higher responsibility over them. So yes, the right of the husband is much greater than the right of the wife. Al-Jassas rahimahullah said, Allah tells us in this verse that each of the spouses has right over the other and that the husband has one particular right over his wife which she does not have over him. These rights, huh? Al Jassas, that's his name, he's one of the Salaf, Al Jassas. So, what are the rights of the husband? A, the obligation of obedience. This is your right as a husband, that your wife obeys you in everything, everything as long as you do not ask her to disobey Allah. If you order her to disobey Allah, she does not obey you. Because there is no obedience to the creation in disobeying the Creator. In disobeying the Creator. He says Allah has made the man a qawwam, a protector and a maintainer of the woman by commanding directing and taking care of her, just as guardians take care of their charges, by virtue of the physical and mental faculties that Allah has given only to men, and the financial obligations that He has enjoined upon them. Allah says, men are the protectors and maintainers of women. 
Why are men the protectors and maintainers of women? One thing people do not, do not understand, my dear brothers, especially this Western society, they think that Islam makes the man superior above the woman. And this is not true. But Allah Azza wa Jal gives this degree of authority to the man over the woman for a reason. And that is because he is responsible for his family on the day of judgment. Whereas his wife is not responsible for him on the day of judgment. And that's why Allah gives the authority to the man. So you hear people asking this question, why does the man have the authority to do this and the lady doesn't? This is a stupid question. Because on the day of judgment, I will be questioned over my family. But my family might not necessarily be questioned over me. So Allah gives me the authority of discipline. He gives me the authority of guiding. He gives me the authority of commanding the good and forbidding the evil in my family. Because they are on my neck in the next life. They are on my neck in the next life. A wife might not be held accountable for what her husband does in front of Allah. Wife has no authority in that sense. But a husband, he can be held accountable in front of Allah over his family. That's why Allah gives the man that. So people see it as all oh, this superior thing. No, if anything, it's a huge responsibility on the man's neck. That's the honest truth. So the wife must obey her husband as long as he does not ask her to disobey Allah. Ali ibn Abi Talha, he said, narrating from Ibn Abbas, عنه, the great companion, he said, men are the protectors and maintainers of women, means they are in charge of them. They sh she should obey him in matters of obedience that Allah has enjoined upon her, and obey him by treating his family well and taking care of his wealth. And that was the view from the Salaf such as Muqatil, As-Suddi, and Al-Dahaq. So this is our deen, my dear brothers. And we are not shy or ashamed of it. Alhamdulillah, we are proud of our religion. The wife must obey her husband. She must be obedient to her husband. B. Making herself available to her husband. That's the husband's right. That the wife makes herself available to him. One of the rights that the husband has over his wife is that he should be able to enjoy her physically. If he marries a woman and she is able to have intercourse, see, she is obliged to submit herself to him according to the contract if he asks her. That is after he gives her the mahar and gives her some time, like two or three days at the beginning if she asks for that to sort herself out because that is something that she needs and because that is not too long and is customary. That's like after the marriage, after they move in, if the wife needs two or three days just to prepare herself for her husband, she can have that. But after that, once the mahar has been paid or they've moved in and the wali knows and the marriage is known and they're together, she cannot refuse her husband. It's not allowed. And it's from the major sins. The Sheikh says here, if a wife refuses to respond to her husband's request for intercourse, she has done something haram and has committed a major sin unless she has a valid shari'i excuse. Like what? If she's menstruating. 
because she cannot have sexual intercourse when she's menstruating. Or if she's performing an obligatory fast, like making up one of her days of Ramadan, but not even a voluntary fast. She's not allowed to fast sunnah without her husband's permission because he might want to be intimate with her that day. Okay, but if she's making up an obligatory fast, she doesn't need her husband's permission. Or if she's genuinely sick and she's not capable of being intimate, she's excused in this case. Abu Huraira narrated that the Prophet said, when a man calls his wife to his bed and she refuses and he went to sleep angry with her, the angels will curse her until the morning. The angels will curse her until the morning. The Prophet ﷺ even said, the lady should respond even if she's on the back of a camel. Meaning, no matter how busy she is. If her husband calls her to be intimate, she should respond. Yes? But why? Yeah, why? Because if she doesn't, what's the husband going to end up doing? If he becomes weak, he'll fall into zina wal-iyadu billah. Whether it's the zina of the eye, the zina of the ear, the zina of the private part wal-iyadu billah, no. So the wife cannot, she is not allowed to reject her husband. Some wives, they think that they can punish their husband in this way. Wallahi, they're punishing no one but themselves. Not punishing your husband, you're punishing yourself. He'll eventually end up getting married to a second wife, no problem. And you are punishing yourself. For the wife has to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also from the rights of the husband, my dear brothers, is that not admitting anyone who the husband dislikes into the house. It's your right as a husband that your wife does not let people enter your house who you do not want in your house. From friends or whatever else. When it comes to relatives, it gets more technical. Like parents and whatever else, it's a sensitive topic. Husband should not prevent these type of people unless there is real genuine Islamic valid reasons for it. So you're not allowed to um, say about your parents are wrong. Yeah, no, you're not allowed. Because part of honoring the wife is honoring her family as well. Unless there is genuine Islamic... Like Islamic religion-wise? Religion-wise, only religion-wise, yes. Not wallah, I don't like him, don't let him here, no. Maybe because the girl's family at the end of the day is is her family. See, this is what we said, it depends. Every in-law can sometimes maybe create a problem. We might hear a word from an in-law we don't like. We have to also have patience. But if it reaches a stage where it's affecting people's religion, affecting people in a bad way, then yes, here we can start taking a position. Every case is dealt with differently. Now, so one of the rights that the husband has over his wife is that she should not permit anyone he dislikes to enter his house. For example, the husband knows the wife has a friend he doesn't like. If he tells her, I don't want that person in my house, she must obey. She must obey. This is his haqq. Abu Huraira narrated that the Prophet ﷺ said, it is not permitted for a woman to fast when her husband is present without his permission. That means voluntary fasts. Or to admit anyone into his house without his permission. And whatever she spends in charity from his wealth without his consent. So if a lady wants to give sadaqah from her husband's money, she has to have his consent and his permission. Yes. Sulaiman ibn Amr ibn al-Ahwa said, My father told me that he was present at the farewell hajj 
with the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, praised and glorified Allah. Then he preached the sermon and said, "Treat women kindly, for they are prisoners, and you have no other power over them than that. If they are guilty of open lewdness, then refuse to share their beds and hit them, but not severely. But if they return to obedience," Do not seek means of annoyance against them. You have rights over your women, and your women have rights over you. Your rights over your women are that they should not let anyone who you dislike sit on your bed, and they should not let anyone whom you dislike enter your house. Their rights over you are that you should feed and clothe them well. And in the hadith of Jabir, he said, Fear Allah concerning women. Verily, you have taken them on the security of Allah, and intercourse with them has been made lawful to you by words of Allah. You too have right over them, and that they should not allow anyone to sit on your bed whom you do not like. But if they do that, you can chastise them, but not severely. Their rights upon you are that you should provide them with food and clothing in a fitting manner. So that is also the husband's right. D, it is also the husband's right not going out of the house except with the husband's permission. This is your right over your wife, that she does not leave your home without your permission. If you want that and you ask for that, if you tell your wife, I don't want you leaving the house unless you get my permission, she must obey. One of the rights of the husband over his wife is that she should not go out of the house except with his permission. The Shafi'is and the Hanbalis, they both said, she does not have the right to even visit her sick father except with the permission of her husband. And he has the right to prevent her from doing that. Because obedience to the husband is obligatory and it is not permitted to neglect an obligatory action for something that is not obligatory. Okay, this does not mean you cannot make an agreement with your wife. Some husbands are okay with their wives leaving the house without them seeking permission. If you're okay with that, that's fine. Then your wife doesn't have to always seek your permission when she leaves the house. But if you as a husband want that, she has to obey. Okay, like me personally, I don't tell my wife, Ask me every time you want to leave the house. I just tell her, when you leave the house, if you're going somewhere, just text me where you're going. Just so I know. And that's it. She knows. I'm happy with that. She's happy with that. But if the husband wants and he tells his wife, you can't leave the house, she can't. And if he tells her, if you're leaving the house, you have to let me know, she has to. That's his right. And how about she cannot complain unless he's oppressing her. So how about she says, I don't want to go to this place. And then look, she's gonna, it's she's his right. She's going to start something. No. Her, 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 of course her, it is. That, that, that's, he can... Show her this. Show her that. I'm holding the Yes. Definitely. If the husband has an issue with that, he should always make it clear before the marriage because the wife might want to work. But if they are married 
and the husband is providing for her and she wants to work and the husband doesn't want her to work, she cannot work. As long as he's providing for her. But if he's not, then it's her haq. She wants to live. Yes. Okay. All comes back to obedience. General. The wife must obey her husband as long as he does not ask her to disobey Allah, as long as he fears Allah and is not oppressing. With our rights, we do not abuse them. So the husband also should show leniency when it's needed and whatever else. But generally, the wife must obey her husband if he is asking her to obey him. That is our deed. And that's her ticket to paradise. Women think that that's men superior. Absolute. That's you superior. The Prophet ﷺ said any lady that prays her prayers, fasts her days, and obeys her husband and protects her chastity and obeys her husband, it will be said to her, enter paradise from whichever gate you choose. For a man to achieve that, he has to do the, the biggest and the greatest of actions. He will give his blood in the path of Allah to be able to enter paradise from whichever gate he wants. A lady has it so simple. Do these three or four things, obey your husband, you will have the freedom to enter Jannah from which what better than that do you want? It's so clear, that's right. It is so clear, without a doubt. How you make a woman happy? She would come on with a thousand Yeah, exactly, that's right. If a husband died that he was paid the that's Correct, correct, correct. It is. It's not the deen that's... The, the deen is very easy. No. Okay, Shabab. A. Husband's right to discipline. The husband has the right to discipline his wife if she disobeys him in something good. Not if she disobeys him in something haram. Because Allah has enjoined disciplining women by forsaking them in bed and by hitting them lightly. And if there is any benefit in that. Meaning, if there's no benefit in the light hit, shouldn't even be done. If you know there's no benefit in it. When they do not obey. The Hanafis mentioned four situations in which a husband is permitted to discipline his wife by lightly hitting. These are if she does not adorn herself when he wants her to. Not responding when he calls her to the bed, if she is pure, meaning not menstruating, or not praying, and going out of the house without his permission. These are some of the reasons that Ahnaf gave. What do you mean by um, light? When I, if a husband hitting in Islam is permitted, yeah, but it cannot be mubrih, as Allah says, it cannot be hard. So it's not a hit to hurt. To hit for discipline, whether it's the wife or the child, it's just a discipline. Tap, a little, whatever. No, bruising, bruising, marking, all of that is not allowed. This is haram. This is not allowed. No. Inshallah, look at look at the size of you. If you just if you just do that, it's just gonna go through a wall. Allahumma uh, Some of the ulama said that because it doesn't hurt the siwak and whatever else. What what important shabab? What important is that it's not a hit to hurt. 
it's to discipline, to teach. And it's the final resort if other things did not work. The Prophet ﷺ said advise, and Allah said advise, then abandon in the beds. Then it's resorted to that. And even that, it's not to hurt. And the Prophet ﷺ never hit any of his wives, ever. Even though they sometimes require discipline, but he never hit. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The evidence is the verse as to those women on whose part you see ill conduct, admonish them first. See, remind them. Next, refuse to share their bed. And last, hit them lightly if it is useful. And Allah said, O you who believe, ward off yourselves and your families against a fire whose fuel is men and stones. Protect yourself and your families. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah said that Qatada said, Qatada is one of the big imams of the Salaf. He said, you should command them to obey Allah and forbid them to disobey Allah. You should be in charge of them in accordance with the command of Allah and instruct them to follow the commands of Allah and help them to do so. If you see any act of disobedience towards Allah, then stop them from doing it and rebuke them for that. That's the right of the husband over his family. Yes? Is, is the person still not allowed to hit on the face? Never allowed to hit on the face. Whether it's the wife, the child, or anyone. And Nabi Sallallahu forbade this. Finally, my dear brothers, the husband's right over the wife is that she serves him. The wife serving her husband. There is a great deal of evidence for this, some which has been mentioned above. And Shaykhul Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah said, she is obliged to serve her husband according to what is reasonable among people of similar standing. That varies according to circumstances. The way a Bedouin woman serves her husband will not be like the way of a town dweller, like a city lady. And the way of a strong woman will not be like the way of a weak woman. Yani they might differ according to their environment, how much she obeys her husband, how much she serves her husband and whatever else. But generally, it's the husband's right that his wife serves him. And the last one, my dear brothers, is the wife should treat her husband in a good manner. Just like the husband has to treat her in a good manner. And we have the verse here, the women have right over their husbands, similar as the husbands have over them. Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah said, it was also narrated from him, meaning Ibn Abbas, that this means they have the right to good companionship and kind and reasonable treatment from their husbands, just as they are obliged to obey the commands of their husbands. These are the words of the Sahaba, not anyone else. For these are briefly the rights of the husband uh, over his wife, and alhamdulillah, this ends our two-day marriage course. And we mentioned that يعني, two days to cover the fiqh of marriage and the hakam of marriage is not enough. But we just try to give a general يعني, covering over some of the main points. Wallahu a'lam. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabina Muhammad wa ala ali wa sahbihi wa sallam. Are there any questions before we wrap it up? Marwan? Things were happy to be careful there's no joking in divorce. The Prophet ﷺ said two things, their seriousness is serious and their joking is serious. 
divorce and freeing a slave. So if a man jokingly tells his wife, you're divorced, then the divorce applies. If a man jokingly says to his slave, I set you free, the slave is set free. So we don't joke regarding divorce. Sorry? About the joking? No, them too. No man is forced to get a divorce in that sense, unless someone put a weapon against him and told him divorce your wife. Here he's forced. But wallah, my wife pushed me, pushed me, pushed me, pushed me, and then I said it. No, he's responsible. He's responsible. Just briefly, um, okay, saying about um, back here, when it comes to intercourse, you go, you go next to that, yeah, and you do it like, through there. Is that automatically a good tool? Yeah. No, it's automatic divorce, no. It's not, yeah? So, then do you mean to do anything to prevent a divorce? Correct, of course. Okay, it's a major sin, yeah. but it's not, it's not an automatic divorce. That's a, that's a traditional statement, isn't it? What's the actual, it's a sin, yeah? It's a major sin. Major sin, yeah. Major sin. Because it comes from a dirty place, vicious Correct, place. correct, yes. It's been mentioned in one of the hadiths, but this is not kufr that takes a person out of Islam. Well, does that have to be paid in front of the two witnesses, or can it be paid any time? No, any time, as long as it's paid. It's not a condition, it's paid in front of the witnesses, unless they put that in the condition. Unless they put that in the condition, otherwise it can be paid any time. The quicker the husband gives the mahar, the better, because it's a right, it's a, something on his neck for his wife. How would you differentiate between fuller uh, and um, annulment? Annulment is when they both refuse. Husband is not divorcing, wife is not choosing to get a khulah, yeah, but they don't want to be together anymore. The sheikh nullifies. The marriage. What is that called? That's fasch. That's called a fasch. That can, that can happen. It can happen where the Islamic judge just nullifies a marriage between two people. Allah has given him that authority that if the husband, for any reason, cannot or is not divorcing, or the wife cannot or is not getting a khula, but they are refusing to be together, and they don't want to be together, and they want to part ways, but they're refusing to do it, then the Imam... What would happen to the mahar in that situation? If there's a fasq, Allahu A'lam, it goes to the lady. Allahu A'lam. Allahu A'lam. If, say, for example, in this scenario, if um, a, a, a brother was to say, uh, agreed to say, I'll, I'll buy you, say, a $2,000, like, say, a ring, you know, as, as a, or, or a bank or whatever, like, as, as a Yamaha. And then, say, for example, she went and uh, um, wanted to upgrade that, and she, she said, she said I, want to, I want to give something better, right? And then it became like a $3,000 or $4,000. Which is that also part of the Mahar, or is the Mahar still the initial $2,000 or a because he's not obliged to take it up to 3,000. If he done that, then that extra 1,000 is a gift. 
access to you. So the Mahatma announced to say, even if the, the reef or the, or the necklace or whatever he had from him, when it was upgraded. Correct. Was Correct. So if the whole thing comes up, it becomes a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. What's the Sorry? The Iddah Sorry? The one menstrual cycle for the lady. But the divorce is three menstrual cycles. That's the correct opinion. Um, how bad is it? Um, the first and the second divorce... The lady isn't going to add them the husband's house. It's very bad. Allah tells them not to do their idda anywhere else except their husband's house. The lady is not allowed to leave her house during, like move out of her husband's house during the first or second divorce. And the husband is not allowed to kick her out either. The first and second divorce, the lady's idda must be in her husband's home. Allah commands it in the Quran. The reason for that is in hope that they can fix the marriage because she's still considered his wife. He, like we said, like we said, these are general ayat. These are verses of generality. If we get specific cases where the lady's life is at risk and whatever else, of course the sharia will allow her to move out under those circumstances. But wallah, the husband doesn't hit, he doesn't beat, he's not violent, and she just wants to pick up and leave after the first or second divorce, it's haram, she's not allowed. She has to do her divorce in her husband's home. Her idda in her husband's home. Some people, they want to put in a marriage contract, if the husband marries the second wife, the lady can issue yeah. The scholars, the scholars differed regarding these types of conditions. Some scholars said if the husband agrees to it, he has to fulfill it. Meaning if he agrees in a condition of marriage in the contract, that I will not marry another wife, then he has to fulfill it. Other scholars say that condition is invalid, even if he agreed to it. It's invalid because it is a condition that goes against the kitab and the sunnah. Yeah, and I think it was Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, if I'm not mistaken, Rahimahullah, he said that contract, that condition is invalid. Uh, can we have pre-marital financial agreement, like in case if you get divorced, you don't share more savings and house, like something. Can you have that agreement between a husband and husband and wife can agree on whatever they want? Yeah. They can agree on whatever they want, no problem. As long as the rights are not taken away. No problem. Like for example, if, if my wife's mahar is $10,000, I divorced her out of my good heart, I want to give her $50,000. I'm allowed to do that. It's not her. As long as I'm not taking her right away. Why if there was no agreement No such thing as fair share. Lady is entitled to her mahar. That's it. Anything else extra is from the husband if he wants, from his own good will. Now, this is the Sharia. No, only the Mahar. That's all. He only gives her the Mahar, and whatever is hers is hers. Whatever is hers is hers. And he gives her the Mahar. And if they have children, and the children are living with her, he provides only for his children. He provides for his children. And if they're living in this law here, yeah, living in this law, um, right? In this law, there's like an 85% thing. If she takes all of that as well, plus her mother. She's committing a sin. 
Of course it is. Of course. 100%. And follow both parties. She can. She can. The many women do it this day and age. That's what happens when people don't fear Allah. طيب شباب سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك